<clears throat> this is the first day of this December 2019 two-day session. And uh, for this weekend, we will be reading from uh, a book called From the Zen Kitchen to Enlightenment, Refining Your Life. Uh, and it's by the very famous Zen Master Dogen and a commentary by uh, a contemporary well, that might be the wrong word. He, 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 has, he has died, but he is a uh, 20th century teacher. Um, or, sorry, yeah, tw- teacher from the 1900s. I often get that confused. Um, so, uh, by the name of Uchiyama. Uh, but before we start this book, I thought it would be helpful to just kind of cover a few things about working with pain and inevitably, I end up getting and talking a little bit about posture as well. So I just want to um, talk about that a little bit. I remember when I first started practicing, people were asking me about uh, Zazen and Buddhism. And I, there were a couple of times I did uh, mention, you know, the Four Noble Truths. The first one being uh, life is suffering. And uh, if we stop there, then yeah, Buddhism would be would be a pessimistic religion, um, and I think some some people or uh, who don't know much about Buddhism or Zen though um, would might believe that. But but of course, uh, the second noble truth is that uh, there is a way out. I know I'm preaching in the choir here. Uh, but I will just just dive into talking about pain, and I always like to start off with uh, you know with working with pain in sashin, especially when it's such a short sashin for two days. Sometimes it feels like we're just kind of struggling to get out of either sleepiness or the pain, and then the next thing you know, uh, it's over. So the one thing I always like to bring up from the very beginning is to stay away from, um, let's put it this way, I like to bring up the two extremes. The one extreme um, is the sharp stabbing pain in the legs, especially in the knees. Uh, that is a no-no. Stay away from that kind of sharp stabbing pain. We don't want to. I, I've come to believe in long term, if we do ignore that kind of um, stabbing pain, it can can uh, do some real damage to the body. And we don't want to do that. This is a practice that we are doing for a lifetime. If we stick with it, it we will reap the benefits of this practice. Uh, so we want to have a good posture as best we can. to, to um, So stay away from the sharp pain. Um, on the other hand, if there's no pain... Uh, and especially in Sashin, um, there is a danger that we can go uh, to uh, the practice becoming listless, uh, kind of soggy, kind of, you know, just kind of getting lost in our thoughts. And, and uh, Aitken Roshi, uh, the teacher from the Diamond Sangha, um, whose main center was in Hawaii, uh, he had a good expression, which was sitting on the front edge of the pain. So for each of us, that is really figuring out that front edge. Having enough pain uh, with a good posture 
um, where it's not exasperating, there's not a sharp pain, and um, but being being able to get beyond the pain uh, through the practice. Again, I'll bring up two extremes. Uh, one, and how do we deal with this pain? Well, that's what, what these other two kind of sides of, of of the practice, if you will. The one is, you know, trying to suppress the pain. You know, just basically white knuckling it. And I suppose that could work for a while, um, but it's not in the long term. That's just it's gonna. It's not gonna work. Basically, uh, it's the same thing with our thoughts. We can't suppress our thoughts, um, so don't even don't, don't don't even try. Even though for many of us, with in terms of suppressing our thoughts, I think I realize now that I did that for quite a while. Until it finally sank through in one particular sashin, I still remember the doksan I had with Roshi, and he just basically plainly said, you know, no, it's not about suppressing your thoughts. And I think that is when I, it finally sunk in, and I, I turned a corner there, where I got less involved with my thoughts. So that's one side of the, the coin, if you will, is the suppressing uh, the pain. And the other side of it is, Clean, clean to your thoughts about the pain. Um, just, I wrote a couple of things. Why me? Or I can't take it. Or I can't do this. Um, those are dangerous, sticky thoughts that, you know, they're there. We notice them, but just don't pay attention to them. And so how do we get away from suppressing or clean? Uh, it's just, it really is just a question of, Getting back into the practice, getting back, I don't want to use those words, or I've said it so many times, but it's just really focusing on if, say, your practice is counting the inhalations and exhalations, you just focus on that as, as, as much as you can, putting that effort into each breath. If you're following the breath, it's the same thing, just um, getting away from our thoughts about ourselves and the pain and focusing on the breathing as much as we can. Another helpful thing I think you, we all may know, but I want to repeat it, is it's important to alternate your posture if you can. If you're doing a cross-legged posture, then right on top of left for one round and left on top of right. Uh, even doing seiza, the kneeling posture, trying that for, for a bit. And one of the reasons why uh, doing zazen can be so painful um, or there is pain involved is because of the no moving. And I just wanted to, of course, mention the exceptions to no moving. Of course, we can blink and we can swallow. Coughing is fine, as we mentioned in our, uh, there, as the mantras mentioned yesterday, in the introductory remarks. And of course, if you get into this well, if you get into a sharp pain, especially at the end, then um, I think this is more outside of sashin. Get out of that. You're not going to do any kind of internal damage if you just have one, you know, round of sharp pain, especially at the end. But uh, do change that posture and don't don't reenact that that posture, that painful process of, of experiencing sharp pain. So the no moving is really important, and 
because um, what we are doing with this practice is we are we are facing ourselves. There is no way. There's another way of looking at it. Uh, the fight or flight. Uh, we're really facing ourselves and what's going on uh, in our lives. What's going on internally with our thoughts and all the emotional obstructions might occur, that might occur. Uh, I always felt an analogy that's really helpful for that is uh, just seeing these emotions, emotional obstructions, or all these thoughts as just a weather pattern that's just going to come through. The, the more we can get back to the breath practice or the koan, uh, the more quickly that, that weather storm will pass. It's just like clouds, clouds and water just it just that's um the, there's a great kind of and i forgot what the word i think it's the japanese words is unsui unsui means clouds and water we're adapting uh, everything is impermanent and everything changes and obviously more so we can see uh through zazen what's going on through our patterns so the less we stick with with a uh, cling to uh the storm of the mind the more quickly it will pass until something else comes up. Relaxing the body can be really helpful. There's a few things, and um, feel free just for this part if you want to look up, if, if, if you're curious. Uh, one of the things I do, I often do at the start, and I see others do uh, when I'm monitoring, that I notice people do at a start of round, is they'll, they'll roll their shoulders. It might help with the straight a posture. So just basically rolling one shoulder at a time, I'll take my left, move it forward, and just like this circular motion, bring it back. And then the right shoulder, roll it forward and, forward and bring it back. There's a great new image that I have in terms of the head posture, the chin. I always use this image of it's like a string in the back of the neck, uh, pulling your, tilting your head up towards the, the top of your head towards the heavens. Uh, but another great image I just learned, which I find very helpful, is to see your chin as a drawer that's being pushed in. So you're just kind of bringing it back. It's going straight back. So you don't want your head down. Uh, and obviously you don't want your head up, which is another tr um, problem that can happen, especially if we're so caught up in our thoughts. But to bring the chin in like you're pushing in a drawer. And then you can feel the back of your collar. That's another thing that I sometimes do as a, as a little helpful trick at the start of a round to make sure my, 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 the back of my neck is nice and straight as I'll grab the collar of my robe and I'll just kind of tuck it. And it kind of encourages that straight head posture. Yep, hips higher than the knees, if you can. Um, and if your knee is raised a little bit at the posture, it's always good to get some kind of connection on the mat. And finally, I wrote no marine posture. You know, we're not, this is the relaxing of the body. We don't want to, you know, things might feel tight down in the legs because we're, we're crossing our legs like a pretzel. Um, but then the upper body, try and keep it as relaxed as possible. Maybe a trick with that would be just a one or two breaths where you're just kind of and if you notice any tension in the upper body, just kind of relax the muscles. Uh, we will have a calisthenics period later on, which can, can really help with that.
putting in the effort uh, without straining. Again, it comes back to relaxing body. Uh, but with this practice, we are putting effort into it. Um, but again, they use that expression, we're not white knuckling it, like just trying to get this smooth, like just get it down there. Um, we're not trying to do that. And again, I think uh, unconsciously, I was doing that for quite a while in Sashin um, until it just sunk in that you need to, one needs to relax the body when they're, when they're practicing. Uh, but again, it's, it's this effort, maybe a better word for effort is energy. Just putting energy into following the breath. So if we work on this, uh, especially in Sashin, there is, uh, there's no other word I can think of it right now where, that I can use other than the word alchemy. There's just this incredible alchemy that happens through putting effort and energy into the practice where the pain just doesn't matter anymore. It's there, but it's not there. It's kind of in the back of the mind. And oftentimes it will just disappear. So what's that, that all about? Well, uh, yeah, what is that all about? Uh, well, all the pain is really, a lot of our pain can just be a function of thinking about the pain or thoughts about the pain. And finally, I mean, and I think I'll be talking, we'll be reading from this a little bit, um, but really the, the, the great kind of, one of the great, say, byproducts of this practice of facing ourselves and, and working with our pain is that it does have this, again, this word alchemy of, of um, transforming our lives in our daily activity, uh, whether it be with uh, working with, you know, the coworker we find really annoying or witnessing a uh, something socially awkward. Um, that's the wrong word. I mean, how, how often does that happen? But um, just feeling when there is, say there is a disagreement, um, through Zazen, we just can be more with that discomfort. We can sit with this. Okay, these two people are working something out. I mean, this is, I guess I'm going back to a personal experiences I've had. I've just would feel so socially awkward sometimes, uh, if people got into a disagreement. And I have a lot less of that. Uh, and most of the time it's actually gone. Uh, I remember one time, uh, I won't get into too much detail, but basically I could see it coming between this tour guide and this guy who wasn't really into this tour and, was talking with his girlfriend, and it was kind of, it was really disruptive. And then finally, this tour guy said something quite sarcastic, and then the guy blew up, snapped back at him. And uh, I do know that, you know, years before practice, if that had happened, I would be freaking out. Like I'd be just feeling so just. I, oh my god! I can't believe these two people are are. Um, going at it that way. Um, it might be part of my condition as a growing up as a good Canadian boy, but 
But uh, when that happened, I had that happened. I was just, I just stood there and just like I was open. I was just wondering, well, what's going to happen? How is this going to resolve itself? And uh, there was no tension there. There was no kind of. It was just more of a. And I was just in an open space where I could just accept these two people having a disagreement. And obviously, if it would have gotten ugly. Maybe, maybe getting involved somehow, separating them, but I, of course, it didn't. It was nowhere near that. So it was just more as an observer. It's being the, the observer, being okay with what is. That's what it, it really is. Being okay with what is, not reacting. Okay, from the Zen kitchen to enlightenment, refining your life, Dogen and Uchiyama. Uh, the translator is by Thomas Wright, longtime Zen practitioner who's really, it's been one part of his practice has really been focusing on um, or reading the works of Dogen. So we're in a good place with this guy, and especially, obviously, with Uchiyama. And the way the, the book is structured is, of course, there's a foreword, an introduction by the, the uh the translator I mentioned his name already, Thomas Wright, and I might dive into that a little later on. And then the first chapter is the actual work by Dogen, which is called Instructions for the Zen Cook. And then following that, the rest of the book is basically uh, Uchiyama commenting on picking different passages from Instructions for the Zen Cook and commenting on it. And I'm going to start off by reading the most, probably the most famous passage from Instructions for the Zen Cook. And it goes like this. It has been several hundred years since the Buddha Dharma was introduced into Japan. Yet no one has ever written about the preparation and serving of meals as an expression of Buddha Dharma, nor have any teachers taught concerning these matters. Much less has there been any mention of bowing nine times to offering the meal to the residents. Of course, here what we do instead of that is, the, uh, especially in Sashin, are the formal meals from, that we've all experienced uh, in the morning and evenings. Uh, at the center during our regular schedule, uh, we have done in the past at least, you know, we have five meals uh, well, of course, we have we eat three meals a day, but for lunch, uh, in the past, our schedule has been about doing two, uh, more ideally three formal meals out of the five uh, lunches a week. Uh, but given that we're so short-staffed right now, uh, that's one of the corners we've had to cut. And so, what we've done instead, as a kind of respect for the food that we have op- we have received, uh, we always start our meals in silence for the first, say, seven or eight minutes. To repeat that sentence, much less has been there, much less has there been any mention of bowing nine times prior to offering the meal to the residents. Such a practice has never entered the minds of people in this country. Here, people think nothing of eating like animals with no concern for the way they eat. What a pathetic state of affairs. It truly saddens me to see things this way. Why must it be so? 
And then he talks about his time in China. When I was at Mount Tiangtong, and my f- apologies for bastardizing all these Chinese words. Uh, when I was at Mount Tiangtong, a monk called Lu from Kyongyang Fu was serving as head cook. One day after the noon meal, I was walking to another building within the complex when I noticed Lu drying mushrooms in the sun in front of the Butsuden. Uh, Butsuden is some kind of structure that has a, uh, a bodhisattva figure in it. He carried a bamboo stick but had no hat on his head. The sun's rays beat down so harshly that the tiles along the walk burned one's feet. Lu worked hard and was covered with sweat. I could not help but feel the work was too much of a strain for him. His back was a bow drawn taut. His long eyebrows were crane white. I approached and asked his age. He replied that he was 68 years old. Then I went on to ask him why he never used any assistance. He answered, Other people are not me. You are right, I said. I can see that your work is the activity of the Buddha Dharma, but why are you working so hard in the scorching sun? He replied, If I do not, if I do not do it now, when else can I do it? If I do not do it now, when else can I do it? There was nothing else for me to say. As I walked on along that passageway, I began to sense inwardly the true significance of the role of the Tenzo, the head cook. Other people are not me. The great benefit of doing this practice is that we become more independent, more authentic. It's not that we don't rely on others. And in fact, yes, especially if you're in a difficult situation, particularly something, particular job, uh, asking for help can be great. That's that great uh, help of the Sangha, say, to help one others and be willing to ask for help when one needs it. But as time goes on, we are, and as our practice matures, we, we are more able to become independent. Uh, and in doing our tasks, uh, we become free from our thoughts. We become free from our resentments. If it's a particularly uh, difficult task that we're doing, to not ruminate on that, but just do the task. That is really, that is what, how I see uh, part of the story is about, is, is becoming more independent, becoming free, becoming free. Again, it comes back to uh, how we constantly searching outside of ourselves. I um I chose actually Roshi suggested that I I read from this work based on my experience as as a head cook I was uh, the head cook uh for 9 years and I I did read this work once and 
maybe not the commentaries, but what hit me so hard yesterday um, is is how uh, those nine years, how in a way the work that I did was just felt so inadequate after reading this 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 instructions of the cook again, and not in a beating up or a shameful way. I mean, we can all. Yeah. Oh, maybe there's a little bit of that. But it's the, the what Dogen is talking about here in Instruction the Cook, which is so remarkable, is it's it's the aspiration of really serving the Dharma, serving and offering uh what is such an important job and serving the Sangha and and just doing it wholeheartedly. And and some of these sentences just kind of some of these passages I would just find myself uh, realizing uh, my mistakes, uh, but that's okay. I mean, that's that's where I was at the time. And those were the mistakes that I made. It's a, it can be a very, it is an extremely demanding job. But uh, the, the, I suppose what I'm trying to express here is my regret that I did not read this this more often uh, throughout my time as a head cook. I think it could have really helped boost uh, my morale, and 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 I could have performed uh, my functions a lot um, more efficiently or uh, had the right frame of heart, the right frame of mind when I was uh, cooking for, for so many years and managing um, the food at the center. Read one more paragraph from Instructions to the Cook, and then I'll get right into uh, some of uh, Uchiyama's commentary. Magnanimous mind, and he capitalizes both those words. Magnanimous mind is like a mountain, stable and impartial. Exemplifying the ocean, it is tolerant and views everything from the broadest perspective. Having a magnanimous mind, again, that's capitalized. Having a magnanimous mind means being without prejudice and refusing to take sides. When carrying something that weighs an ounce, do not think of it as light. And likewise, when you have to, when you have to carry 50 pounds, do not think of it as heavy. Do not get carried away by the sounds of spring, nor become heavy-hearted upon seeing the colors of fall. View the changes of the seasons as a whole and weigh the relativeness of light and heavy from a broad perspective. It is then that you should write, understand, and study the character of magnanimous. And again, I decided to look, look up at that definition. Uh, what does it mean to be magnanimous? Generous or forgiving, especially towards a rival or less powerful person. So, looking into this magnanimous mind, I'll move on into a chapter. So I've kind of dipped into different pat, uh, chapters, uh, things that have resonated. So now we'll be going to chapter 5. Chapter 5, Seeing the World Without Holding Worldly Values. There are any number of arguments these days based on the assumption that all people are seeking happiness. 
Perhaps this is simply because the Japanese are not familiar with looking at things rationally, but for whatever reason, whatever that rose-colored word, whatever that rose-colored word, happiness, is brought up, there is a tendency to assume unconditionally that this is something everyone is after. Think of all of the studies recently that uh, we Americans are, um, there's a huge uh, field of researching uh, happiness and trying to uh, measure it and uh, and look at it. Uh, I think in, in certainly in our country, but also in Europe. If we accept the validity of everyone's desire to be happy, then we would have to inquire into what happiness is and consider its opposite, unhappiness. But it is not my intention here to argue about what happiness is. Rather, I wish to draw attention to the following problem. The idea of seeking happiness presupposes that at present we are unhappy. In Buddhism, this kind of dualistic thinking has no place. Previously, I talked of how it is impossible to trade even one fart, and how finally just living out your life, regardless of the circumstances, is the absolute reality of your life. In living out the Buddha Dharma, this kind of life attitude is essential. Usually people think only in terms of how they can better their situation, if only a little bit, and avoid suffering. Seeing things from the perspective of the Buddha Dharma or of Big Mind, this is capital B, capital N, Big Mind, means to cease engaging in this type of prejudiced, discriminative thinking and to be resolved that whatever we meet is our life. When I speak of big mind in terms of no longer engaging in discriminative thinking, I do not mean that one becomes inert. There's that word again, listlessness or becoming listless or inert. We simply cannot live day by day without discriminating. There is no human life in which there is no difference drawn between miso and kuzo. Uh, Miso is, of course, that sweet pace, and kuzo is actually the Japanese word for excrement. So I'll just repeat that. There is no human life in which there is no difference drawn between miso and kuzo. So in other words, um, we do live, it's okay to discriminate. Uh, Roshi often uses this word of discriminating wisdom. Um, You know, obviously, if you're walking down the street, you're going to get out of the way if a car is coming down the road. Um, that is part of uh, that is just part of being human. We don't want to die. We don't want to get killed. Um, so often, you know, we all always hear everything is one. Well, in the ultimate in the ultimate side of things, yes, there is. It's um, from the very beginning. There is not a single thing. Everything is impermanent. We are one with everything. There is this oneness. But at the same time, as humans, we do live in this world of discrimination. Uh, the problem as humans is that we discriminate all the time. There's this constant judging uh, of 
our judging our practice, comparing ourselves to others, thinking ourselves higher than others, better than others, thinking ourselves worse than others. Uh, it just this constant, constant stream of discrimination. That is the kind of discrimination that we're working with in Zazen and our daily activity. In this case, uh, the head cook, and he talks a lot about this non-discriminating mind, this all-embracing mind when one was working in the kitchen. This is why the question arises in the Tenzo Kyukon. I think that's the instructions to the cook. This is why the question arises in the instructions for the cook about whether one separates the sand from the rice or the rice from the sand. Apparently in olden days in China, the rice polishing process was not very efficient and there were a lot of tiny pebbles mixed in with the rice. This reminds me of uh, the equivalent for us um, is uh, these black beans that I would often buy in bulk. And it was the one bean, of all the beans that we'd buy, it was the one bean that had these little pebbles that very much looked like beans, the black beans. So it was, it was really important uh, to separate those black beans from the stones for obvious reasons. So we'd put this on this light-colored tray, and we'd just have to really sift through uh, the beans on this flat flat tray and then separate the pebbles from the, the black beans. It was... It was quite a it was it was quite a time consuming thing, um, but it was a great teaching for me uh, when I would do it because I I do have that impatient mind. I've noticed over the years that I'm always trying to move on to the next thing, and so uh, sifting through the black beans and the pebbles became just a great grounding practice for me. The first thing the head cook had to do was pick the tiny stones out of the rice before it was cooked. In this respect, there can be no doubt that food fit for human consumption lies at the point where the rice has been distinguished from the stones. So, in our daily lives, we have to discriminate. But what we must not forget is the fundamental attitude grounding this discrimination. Everything we encounter is our life. This is the attitude of big mind. Practically speaking, just how does this work? Earlier, I quoted a passage from the instructions of the cook regarding big mind. Quote, Magnanimous mind is like a mountain, stable and impartial, exemplifying the ocean and is tolerant and views everything from the broadest perspective. Having a magnanimous mind means being without prejudice and refusing to take sides. When carrying something that weighs an ounce, do not think of it as light. And likewise, when you have to carry 50 pounds, do not think of it as heavy. Do not get carried away by the pounds, the sounds of spring, nor become heavy-hearted upon seeing the colors of fall. Usually, pound and ounce, and this now this is Uchiyama speaking. Usually, pound and ounce are thought of as units of weight. This metaphor means, however, that one should not be swayed by the values of society, nor get all excited simply because it is spring, finding yourself in favorable circumstances. Likewise, just because it is fall, there is no need to get all upset and have a nervous breakdown.
Rather, see the four seasons of favorable circumstances. Rather, see the four seasons of favorable circumstances, adversity, despair, and exaltation, all as a scenery of your life. This is what lies behind the expression "big mind." Reminds me of this this verse, this very famous verse from Mumon. Hundreds of flowers in spring, the moon in autumn, a cool breeze in summer, and snow in winter. If your mind is not clouded with unnecessary things, no season is too much for you. Your mind is not clouded with unnecessary things. What happens through this uncluttering of the mind, this dropping our thoughts, and especially in a great place like upstate New York where there is the changing seasons see each season becomes less of uh, an excitement or its other side dreading it. it those things become less and less um, I'm trying to think of the word less um, vocal in our minds, where we just start to accept the falling of the leaves and the changing of the colors and and accept the snow and the cold. Maybe not entirely, maybe not, maybe we're still cursing the weather, especially when it starts to fall into March and April in Rochester. I, I remember feeling discouraged about how cold and damp it was one particular year and I've had enough, but through through the Zen practice, by we just basically slowly but surely just become more one with our circumstances and not reject any particular season. The reason we find hell or unhappiness unbearable and run around longing to escape is because we cling so strongly to the desire for happiness, expecting results. Traditionally in the East, this is seen as a demon making a plaything out of you in the same way a cat does to a mouse it has caught. Perhaps he puts us in a pot of boil, boil, Perhaps he puts us in a pot to boil or chases us up a mountain of needles. We run about all confused and the demon taunts us all the more with our confusion. Or to offer a more modern day example, a man's business fails and his wife falls ill. His child has a traffic accident which causes a nervous breakdown. All his misfortune seems to come at once and in complete despair he begins to struggle. However, since everything, in this case, even misfortune, is our life, what is essential, especially in these circumstances, is to meet adversity with an attitude of equanimity. 
If we fall into hell, then we need to resolve to see that hell is our home. When we are being boiled in the demon's cauldron, that is where we have to do zazen. All right, these are extreme examples. Obviously, they're metaphors, and this poor unfortunate fellow, uh, if that is the case, all these things happen. It is it is a misfortune, but it is his life, and he, and one needs, that is what we are called to do, is to face the adversity and the, just to work with the pain, to work with our struggles uh, and not lose control, uh, not lose control. So a more kind of a more relatable uh, example is what we're doing right now in Sashin. Uh, so when we're working with the pain to not spiral out of control with our thoughts wondering when the round is going to end or when the day is going to end or when Sashin is going to end. But just don't pay attention to the thoughts and just get back to, to following the breath one by one. And it's in this moment, it's in the moment of practice uh, when we're sitting, if we have a particularly uh, difficult round, it's our salvation is that practice. Uh, I often tell people who start Sashin to don't think about, especially if they're about to embark on a seven-day sashin, to not think about sashin as a whole. I mean, it's just overwhelming to imagine that we sit for seven whole days um, with 10 to 12 hours of sitting a day, but to just take one round at a time. That's all we need to do is just, all right, this is the next round. And more so, not only taking the one round at a time, but just taking one breath at a time. And that is how uh, we get through sashin, how we work through sashin, how we we benefit from sashin, and by doing that, sashin after sashin, or just our daily lives of practice day after day, that is how one can face one's problems, one's life, with more equanimity. It's that word again that keeps popping into my mind, alchemy. There's this incredible alchemy that that occurs where we can we can sit and we can and we can. Um, just become less, more accepting of of who we are and what we need to do and and more accepting of our lives as as it is not how we want it to be how we think it should be We view heaven or hell, enlightenment or delusion, all with the same eye. Or to put it more positively, we throw our whole lives into whatever we encounter. And that is the attitude of living out the Buddha Dharma. When we have developed this kind of attitude towards our lives, the meaning of living day by day changes completely, along with our valuation of the events and people and circumstances that arise. Since we no longer try to escape from delusion, misfortune, or adversity, nor chase after enlightenment and peace of mind, things like money and position lose their former value. People's reputations or their skills at maneuvering in society have no bearing on the way we see them as human beings, nor does a certificate of enlightenment make any impression on anyone. What is primary and essential is that we 
that as we develop this vision, the meaning of encountering the things, situations, or people in our lives completely changes. The head cook shows us in a concrete way just how to cultivate this attitude through careful handling of the food we use to prepare meals. We must no longer look at things in the way they are commonly seen. Rather, we need to face everything that arises with the entire meaning and value of these encounters completely altered, seeing everything as our life. It says, When you prepare food, never view the ingredients from some commonly held perspective, nor think about them only in your emotions. In other words, you should not consider something precious simply because it costs a lot of money, nor treat it roughly because it it was inexpensive. It goes on. So this is more... uh, This is another passage from Instructions of the Cook. When making a soup with ordinary greens, do not be carried away by feelings of dislike towards them, nor regard them lightly. Neither jump for joy simply because you have been given ingredients of superior quality to make a special dish. By the same token that you do not indulge in a meal because of its particularly good taste, there is no reason to feel an aversion towards an ordinary one. So yeah, food, food is one of our great attachments in life. And I remember when I first started um, working in the kitchen, uh, Roshi actually said something that, I, that really struck me, uh, which was um, the food we were serving, um, what exactly was it? It struck me and yet I can't remember the words. It's something to the effect of the food that we're serving that there has to have some um, a lot of people are homesick, and so we have to make a certain amendments or certain um, a certain way of of providing um, nurturing food, something that's nurturing um, for them and I remember thinking at the time well it's just Whatever they get, just suck it up. I mean, that's part of the training at, at the Zen Center. Uh, but as time went on, I came to realize how important it is to pay attention to the preparation of the food and the kind of food that we're cooking. Uh, and to, yeah, every once in a while, like, make something special. Uh, I remember this one lasagna that I made. It took quite a long time to make. Um, and I promise you, this is probably the last time I'll talk about food uh, in sashim, so we're not thinking about it. But I made this lasagna, and I remember uh, once everyone sat down and started eating it, and it was one of our days where we, we could talk. Uh, it was our informal meal. And I just remember hearing complete silence. And I'm like, yeah. Yeah, I, I did it. But it was, a, it was, of course, a source of pride. I was really happy that it tasted so good. But that's the kind of... Um, when we do that, not only for special meals, but when we put that kind of attention uh, into the meal, then every meal is a good meal.
tendency of ordinary cooks is to handle plain food carelessly and rich food carefully. As one practicing the Buddha Dharma in the role of the head cook, you should prepare food with all the ardor of your life and with wholehearted sincerity. When you think about it, to all of us practicing the Dharma, the head cook is a remarkably compassionate text. Oh, this is the instruction to cook is a remarkably compassionate text. This teaching shows us how to discover a deeply refined religious life through our daily activities. The text continues, Your attitude toward things should not be contingent upon their quality. A person who is influenced by the quality of a thing or who changes their speech or manner according to the appearance or position of the people they meet is not a person working in the way. All right, well, it feels like we just started with instruction to cook, uh, and then, uh, then I'm just starting to get gain some ground, uh, but our time is up, and so we'll continue this uh, on day two. Uh, we'll stop now and recite the four vows. <laughs> 